All right, awesome. So today, uh, Exalted Subject Studies in the Making of Race and Nation in Canada by Sunera Tobani. So this text is really good uh, for a number of reasons that I'll kind of get into. Uh, but the title shouldn't really turn anyone off. Like it's about Canada specifically, but it has applications all over the globe, certainly with what we're seeing today, even though it was written almost 20 years ago now, actually. But before we get into that, uh, this can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify for podcast searchers. Uh, also, my Patreon is up there, and I have to say that we've met um, the goal of $12 a month, which was would cover having the podcast servers up there, which is really cool. Uh, I also set a bunch of goals that I think are quite funny. Uh, so even if you don't want to contribute, I think that they're worth looking at just because, I don't know, if we ever did get to those goals, uh, funny things will happen. Um, anyways, what else? Is there anything else? No. All right, let's just get into it. So I should say something about the title here. That is exalted, exalted subjects. So exalted subjects, I'll just say off the bat, are subjects that are kind of praised, subjects that are made to be kind of extraordinary in a good way. So she's talking about those subjects that are considered to be, you know, proper, excellent in, you know, deserving of a kind of praise in on the national stage. So this subject for Tobani, that is the exalted subject, uh, essentially enjoys most of the benefits that the state procures, kind of allows them to have. Now, in contrast to that, or in distinction, there is what exists, the outsider, what is often called, you know, the other. And that pretty much sets the stage for how she wants to look at this, where there are, you know, the in, exalted group, and then the out, you know, unexalted, or um, kind of lamentable group. But this is primarily ironic for Tobani because it is on the labor, often slave labor, of many of these quote-unquote others that made the nation possible. In many cases, the state that we uh, are talking about. And this, can, this applies to a number of different nations. But specifically, if we take Canada, some of the various people that uh, or various racialized groups that Tobani comes to talk about, like Asian, Asian Canadian people uh, who were instrumental in essentially uniting Canada, uh, but then suffered pretty terrible treatment uh, from, you know, the Second World War onwards and even before then, so I shouldn't temporalize it like that, or Indigenous people who were obviously here first, uh, not to mention, you know, just the way that so many other racialized groups are treated poorly in Canada. They, in many cases, made the state possible the Canadian state possible. So it's ironic for her that there was somehow in that move uh, a refusal to acknowledge that work, a refusal to acknowledge that kind of proprietary aspect of it, that is the people who worked on it somehow weren't given any kind of claim to it, while the, you know, outsider uh, colonizing, you know, European white person was able to garner all of this kind of status. So this sets up the major question of the book that she sets out, and that is how, despite the current exalted subjects beginning as immigrants, that is, you know, colonizers in many cases, how did they become exalted, exalted subjects? Now this question is important because it kind of sets the stage for her delineating, that is kind of illustrating how those people that aren't considered considered exalted, i.e. those people that are considered others, how they are constructed in the kind of Canadian national imaginary. So one example, and this is certainly something that I think anyone could relate to, not in that they've experienced it, but that they've seen it, when, uh, when outsiders do something quote-unquote wrong. Let's take a very, like, violent example, well, very violent, a, a racist trope that, like, um, uh, Asian people are not good at driving, which is ridiculous, right, obviously. So when someone happens to be driving and they see, like, someone being, like, a bad driver, what they then say if they're like, oh, well, it might be, you know, so-and-so person, if that turns out to be true, 
surely just a coincidence, but then that comes to be the image of the entire group, which then stands in for that entire group, which serves as a kind of feedback loop where your impression of that group is then uh, affirmed and confirmed. Therefore, kind of in a snowball effect or in a continual kind of inert way, keeps enforcing that very same idea. Now, if we think about something in the opposite way, where a, a racialized group is essentially they, someone within that group does something like excellent, then it is seen only as an individual case. Then it is seen almost like an exception because all outsiders are considered, you know, prima facie, that is uh, right off the bat, considered to be, you know, uh, incompetent, backwards, uncivilized. Now, because of the giant enterprise that ex exaltation can be said to kind of procure or kind of motivate, what we can then come to see is a general kind of naturalization of this process where we are seeing or where we will see uh, that these things are just taken to be like myths, an idea that she kind of brings up here that comes out of the work of uh, Roland Barthes, who talks about myths becoming naturalized, things that we take to be just regular, run-of-the-mill, everyday things, but that with a kind of specific scope or specific lens, what he calls a kind of mythology, the study of myths, we can actually discover that there's nothing natural behind it, that they, they are constructed things. And in this process, the other is kind of galvanized. They're kind of uh, concretized in an image, an image of being often, as I mentioned, kind of uncivilized, backwards, barbaric, really terrible things, precisely because of this naturalization process. And there is also another strategy behind this, and it is also to kind of erase the messed up past that a nation like Canada has. Some of those things including, you know, residential schools and the spreading of very deliberate spreading of disease across, you know, indigenous populations. Um, you know, internment camps of uh, Asian Canadian people or Chinese Canadian people, I think specifically, and Japanese Canadian people uh, um, that really, you know, trouble the idea of Canada as this kind of magical, multicultural nation. Now, this process isn't always so neat. And what I mean by that is it's not like a singular uh, kind of locus of kind of power that does this project of exaltation. It is always changing and it's always in flux. That is, it's always kind of adapting to new trends, especially when there are different people coming from different parts of the globe with different values. The narrative needs to be kind of coordinated to um, kind of demonize certain subjects in certain ways or to exalt some subjects in some ways. So when Donald Trump says, you know, or puts, puts forward that um, kind of specific... Uh, immigration test, the one that, you know, valued people that would essentially be coming from Europe, what he is doing is just like a big dog whistle is saying, hey, uh, what we really want are other white people to show up here. What we don't want are people from, you know, mostly Muslim countries or in Canada, uh, you know, to be relevant to what Tobani is talking about. Quebec just passed a new set of kind of questions that immigrants are to pass in order to, you know, be allowed into Quebec, which are super problematic. Uh, and they include like one's capacity to speak English, uh, English, or, sorry, speak French. Um, but another one is like, you know, do you believe in certain rights and values and all this that are supposed to be in keeping with like, in this case, Quebec's kind of identity as a province? or nation. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, but what that serves to do is to kind of allow Quebec to retreat into a kind of mythic zone where they can say, we have these values. And we know we have these values because we know to test people if they share these values in order to let them in. So it says, we have this vetting process. And no one who does who no one who doesn't share these values is allowed in. So that kind of erases the fact that most of the people in Quebec do not share many of the values. Like one of the questions goes almost as follows. 
Um, do you believe in like equality between, you know, men and women when there are so many, you know, quote unquote, like uh, Quebec born people that don't believe this? And that's, this isn't specific to Quebec. Obviously, it's just, this happens to be a kind of topical thing with their current uh, laws being passed, their current kind of rules, which is why I'm using them as an example. But what it serves to do is erase the fact that these very same problems can be observed among nationals, which is a very effective way of erasing that responsibility, of making it no longer a problem of people that exist here or that are born here, what Tobani calls the exalted subjects, and to then transpose that to kind of um, move that problem onto immigrants, which for lack of a better word, is simply just a kind of scapegoat thing. So then any problems that come about can then be transferred onto immigrants. Or take, for instance, uh, for anyone who's a hockey fan would have heard um, Don Cherry is, if you don't know, in Canada, there's uh, a sports segment every Saturday that includes a an old coach. They're two old coaches. Uh, they aren't like one of them's old but they they used to be <laughs> they were coaches a few years ago and the other night so last saturday i guess one of them said last saturday from the time i'm recording this so i don't know a few saturdays ago by the time this comes up one of them said that people coming to this country don't wear poppies and that he sees the fact that so many people come here uh, and expect to be treated with what he called like milk and honey to be kind of welcomed with open arms and they can't even like you know donate a couple dollars to wear a poppy now poppy if you don't know is a symbol for uh fallen soldiers in world war it represents mo both world wars but fallen soldiers that gave their lives for uh quote-unquote you know canada it's can we know how much canada was uh under threat so what this kind of I guess, points to is, is a few things, actually. Firstly, it suggests that immigrants are visible. So when he says, I see people out there that don't, that, that come here, that don't wear poppies, he's pretty much saying all immigrants are people of color. Now, that's a big problem, because that's obviously not true. And what it serves to do is to kind of reinforce the idea that immigrants are of color, and Canadians are white, you know, neutral, white, uh, essentially invisible, right? Exalted subjects can disappear into their surroundings while immigrants are always marked by their identities. Now, the second aspect of this is that it totally erases the fact that there are so many Canadian-born people that choose not to wear poppies, but they do not, uh, they are not criticized in the same way. Why? Who knows? I mean, the easy answer would be uh, this guy just hates immigrants and just sees a good opportunity to kind of push his anti-immigrant agenda, which seems very obvious, very likely. But the kind of undercurrent of that is that it's not even seen, right? This person might not even know that that is what is going on because it's just naturalized. But anyway, so that was kind of a digression, but in my effort to kind of illustrate this. So there are the echoes of Michel Foucault's work here, where uh, when Foucault talks about subjectivity and the way that different modes of power emerge to kind of control populations, we can kind of get the sense that Tobani's work applies to that, because she's talking about essentially control over populations and the construction of a specific kind of in-group identity. But Tobani wants to be careful because in Foucault, he doesn't give a whole lot of space to the study of like, in uh, of, of racialized bodies. So for him, when he writes something about biopower being the desire to kind of promote or maintain control, not by killing people, but by, you know, essentially proliferating them by controlling them as populations that grow, Tobani says, that might apply to, you know, some groups, but there are still so many groups that are marked and identified because of their 
you know, their race, their heritage, nationality, anything like that. And because of that, they don't get to necessarily just uh, be controlled through kind of proliferation. They are still exerted upon as though there was still what Foucault called sovereign power. So that is the idea that there is like a single point of power that exerts its influence over people and often does this through disciplinary sanctions, does it through kind of spectacular uh, methods of torture or, or punishment or anything like that. And we can see that with the example that I just gave of that hockey commentator who essentially on this national stage is calling out immigrants, essentially calling out people who aren't white because he can see them. He knows what they look like. So there's kind of a replication of that sovereign authority. So when Foucault describes the transition from sovereign power to a kind of uh, biopower, Tobani says, okay, that's all well and good, but it forgets to include the fact that there are so many people that aren't pushed into that stage, so many people that remain marked and that suffer for it. So it's because of that she kind of takes... Uh, falls back upon the work of Akil Mbembe, who I, I'm, it might be a she, Mbembe, one of those names I never learned how to pronounce, unfortunately, uh, whose idea about necropolitics she finds much more germane, that is much more relevant, because it specifically deals with how there is still a desire to uh, punish, to kill in many ways, you know, immigrant people. And there are so many explicit examples of this, of, you know, shooters, including in Quebec with a mosque shooting that happened, I guess, three, four years ago, three or four years ago, that killed, like, uh, quite a few people. That is a very much an example, not of biopower, but what Mbembe says is a kind of necropower, necropolitics, that is politics exerted through uh, the act of killing. And this is only intensified when we consider um, kind of Canada's foreign policy, where I've had a number, known a number of people in the military who've told me horror stories of stuff that goes on overseas. Um, yeah, not to get too much into that. So the project for her is to challenge exaltation. And it is only if we challenge this kind of idea Will it be possible for us to move past it as an oppressive institution, oppressive of indigenous people, of racialized people, of immigrants, so that we can move to a more equitable, fair, you know, Canadian identity, Canadian nation, if that's even possible, especially if we consider uh, various indigenous responses to that sentiment. That is, you know, Canada does not exist for many indigenous people because, you know, that is a name imposed upon their land that they do not share. And that will kind of set the, well, that'll come up in various moments throughout this book. But now that propels us here into chapter one, that is the founding of a lawful nation. So she says that despite the kind of claim to lawfulness, despite the claim to a kind of reasonable superiority on the part of the European immigrants, quote unquote, colonizers, not quote unquote, colonizers, uh, Tobani identifies correctly that they were surprisingly lawless in that they were surprisingly reckless in the way that they decimated the land in what is now known as Canada and decimated and essentially massacred the people that were living here. And what is more strange for her is that almost in this process of violent colonization, the violence seems to be justified. It, it seems to be r rendered justifiable, or in her words, reasonable. So how does that happen? How can violence somehow become reasonable? Well, she says that it was made to be reasonable because part of the motivation behind European colonization was, you know, the idea of the divine right or the kind of, um, or kind of manifest destiny. Now, I know that doesn't apply to the colonizers that's specific to the U.S., but it was embedded in their uh, minds that the project was to spread. Now to spread so that they could attain more resources, so that they could find new trading routes, so that they could, you know, essentially expand their territory, but also because they had, you know, 
good old God on their side. And when they could justify their actions because they had this transcendent being telling them what to do, or they were proclaiming that they were doing it in the word or in the name of God, then, my God, there is no limit to the amount of suffering you can inflict. I mean, that is what the Middle Ages certainly tells us about torture methods and and whatnot. If God tells you to do something, very few people would want to say no, because it's God. So it's in that way that the colonization process is inscribed with a kind of truthfulness, a kind of truth that justifies it, and that in the mind of the colonizers makes it uh, um, reasonable, makes it justified. So one example would be, you know, the Enlightenment thinker John Locke, who pretty much said, "You look at all this land over there. Like, it would be a sin for us not to essentially use that land, use the soil, this God-given soil that is over there that is not inhabited. Of course it was, but it's just not being used to the potential it can be. You know, of course, with little understanding at all of like, you know, traditional indigenous practices in relation to the land that vary, I should say, across different indigenous, indigenous nations and tribes. But just saying like, let's just go over there and take it. Like, why not? So one figure that she draws upon to kind of make this case is uh, Giorgio Agamben. So for anyone that's not familiar, Giorgio Agamben is kind of uh, made famous for a few different key concepts. There's what what he calls the state of exception that comes out of, um, I think out of Benamine first, maybe. I, I don't want to screw that up, but I, I might have. Uh, Baudrillard talks about it even before Agamben, but he doesn't get credit for it. Um, but yeah, Agamben's kind of, famous for this idea of the state of exception, where the law can kind of be suspended in the cases of like, um, you know, national security threats or something, where the law can be suspended and people can be, you know, incarcerated without due process or, you know, killed without due process or anything like that. But he, he's also kind of known famous, made famous for another key concept that is a title of one of his books, and that is Homo Saker. Now, homo sacer roughly translates into, like, sacred human. Uh, Now, this sacred human is someone that is both kind of exalted, that is, they are uh, cherished, they are kind of seen as being um, worthy of a kind of status in that system, but is also a person that it has to be put to death. And I read a little bit of ambiguity in this, because it's been a while since I've read that book, but this person isn't to be put to death in a kind of ritualistic manner, like they aren't supposed to be sacrificed, but they're supposed to be seen as a kind of exception to like all rules of normal, uh, you know, death putting or kind of uh, execution like uh, killings so that they are kind of seen like beneath all life to, to, to some extent, what he kind of calls like a bare life. That is, you are the absolute minimum of what it means to be human. So Tobani uses this idea to suggest that indigenous people were kind of rendered this homo sacred, that is, people that were kind of rendered sacred. And there was a kind of like, um, they were kind of uh, fantastical to the Europeans because they had a very different relationship to the divine, if we could call it that, and the earth, that I think in some sense, the uh, European people were kind of jealous of. Because for them, you know, these people were had a more, um, I guess, what I would call natural or a more intimate connection with their surroundings than the Europeans did. I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying this is what I believe they were, you know, thinking at that time. So in that way, they were both the indigenous people to the Europeans were both perceived as a threat and also a point of fascination. So that presented a problem for the Europeans, because if they just simply killed off the people indiscriminately, which they still did, but Tobani says that that would be too, like, overt. That would present too much of a problem for the kind of European superior, reasonable, um, kind of God-driven ideals that supposed to point to the fact that you aren't supposed to kill people. So what they alternatively did was then supposedly or ostensibly benevolently 
added indigenous people into like the law, which only served, and this is the kind of roots of the kinds of policies we see being passed today, uh, or, you know, in operation today, that disenfranchise indigenous people, but in a quote unquote humane way. So she kind of takes a step back here and says that colonization or this process uh, happens in kind of three steps. So the first step is the founding violence. That is the kind of first contact that normally uh, results in people dying. In the case of Canada, that was the kind of literal killing of indigenous people. Uh, The second step is authorizing authority. So that is the idea of uh, justifying a kind of domination over indigenous people. So that is with the ideas of like divine right um, and the law. And then the secular state apparatus supposedly follows, or that is it's effective because it then claims to be not, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. The secular state apparatus is introduced because then they can lay claim to the fact that these, um, these acts are committed on behalf of reason, not a kind of divine authority that is uh, outside of the realm of all reason and that we can't actually appeal to which only serves to justify these acts further. And then thirdly and finally, Tawani suggests that the process of colonization uh, then kind of comes down to maintaining that authority or maintaining sovereignty, sorry. Uh, So this is essentially done by casting, in the case of indigenous people, casting them to reserves, you know, kind of taking them out of the picture. Uh, Also by inscribing laws that were written uh, so as to strip many indigenous people of their um, of their status as indigenous, uh, and this is especially effective against, or this has been especially effective, to disintegrate um, matriarchal indigenous nations. So this is how the uh, laws roughly go in Canada: if an indigenous woman marries uh, a non-indigenous man she loses her status as indigenous, which is messed up. So you're no, those people are no longer recognized as indigenous under the law. So therefore they lose a number of benefits that weren't great in the first place, but they were still benefits. Now, if I, be, let me double check this. So I believe then how it goes is that if a non-indigenous woman marries an indigenous man, then she actually gains indigenous status, which is absurd. Like, it's absolutely absurd that that is, that is how it's conducted for a number of different reasons. Like, it hinges all kind of indigenous identity upon men, which is messed up, obviously, uh, especially because many indigenous uh, groups do not necessarily ascribe to, you know, the gender binary in the way that, you know, the white European settlers do, did, still do, um, and it makes it so that all of those indigenous communities that were essentially constructed around matriarchal uh, structures then find it so much more difficult because so many more women are denied their status as indigenous. So as a kind of an, uh, an aside that Tobani brings up uh, is the work of um, the work of Daniel Francis and I believe Gerald Visner as well, who write about uh, certain indigenous issues specifically the kind of um, romanticization of indigenous people. So this kind of goes as follows, that indigenous people somehow kind of magically have a more intimate connection to the land and uh, to nature and all that. And so this kind of sprouts the idea of what Daniel Francis calls the imaginary Indian, where there's a kind of image embedded in the national imaginary that is, uh, indigenous people are supposed to be, you know, wearing or, or clad in kind of robes and headdresses and stuff, uh, where he describes a moment, it's been a few years since I've read it, where he walks into like an indigenous, um, I think it's like a gift shop or something, and he sees a number of indigenous people just dressed in like jeans and, you know, plaid shirts. And he had a moment there when he was like, wait a second. I thought indigenous people were supposed to, you know, be uh, kind of dressed in a very in the way I just described, which was kind of a, he had a crisis at that moment where he was like, "How is my, um, 
how is my the image I have of indigenous people been crafted by a certain agenda? And this is motivated by all the history books that we get in high school in, in Canada and the United States as well, that always depict indigenous people as these kinds of like, you know, land faring, um, you know, nomadic, peaceful, yet mysterious people. And it's all just a big, you know, hoax, essentially, that is meant to kind of feed into this imaginary ideal. But anyways, that's kind of a an aside that she brings up. Uh, and that puts us here into now chapter two, which is titled Nationals, Citizens, and Others. So this chapter gets at the idea of Canada as a kind of multicultural, cosmopolitan hotbed for hospitality, which you will obviously say is not the case. So the first thing she does is trouble the idea that um, immigrants are strangers to what is, you know, the metropolitan kind of uh, metropole or the kind of uh, main base. There's another word for it, but it's escaping me. Where she says that in so many cases, most of the immigrants that come to various countries are coming from places that these very countries colonized. So some examples, how France uh, colonized Algeria, um, how uh, the, the British colonized India, Pakistan, there are a number of immigrants from there, um, and, you know, it goes on and on. Because, you know, many of these people adopt that language, and so they're like, well, if I'm going to go anywhere, I'm going to go to the place that I have, you know, at least the language with. So she wants to firstly say that the difference that we've constructed between so-called national exalted subjects and other others, immigrants, is mostly imaginary, precisely because of the kind of tumultuous history of uh, colonization. And she furthers this by saying that, kind of affirming what I said earlier, that immigration seems to only become a problem in the minds of, you know, so-called nationals or people that exist in, in various countries when the people coming are not of the same color as them. So when people in the United States talk about illegal immigration, everyone knows they're not talking about, you know, that student from, um, I don't know, the Netherlands that uh, overstayed their visa. They're talking about Mexicans. They're talking about people from Muslim countries, precisely because those are the people they see day to day when, in fact, so many of these people aren't like, first of all, aren't illegal it's just kind of assumed that people that can be seen on the basis of their skin or their dress or anything are then marked as such. And it is only at that moment that immigration becomes a problem. Where there was no problem with quote-unquote immigration when it was transporting black slaves from Africa to the United States for cheap, cheap, ha, cheap, free labor, there was no problem there. So it doesn't seem to be a problem necessarily about people coming in. It seems to be a problem whether or not those people are going to be uh, essentially comply to a kind of image associated with them. But that's wrong. I should rephrase that. Um, it seems a lot less as though it has to do with immigration, and it seems a lot more to do with these people not doing things for uh essentially Americans, that is, being slaves. And of course, no surprise, Tobani says that this has a very smooth connection to white supremacy. And then there's the idea of the kind of model minority. So I kind of struggle with this idea because it can um, fall into racism pretty quickly. And this is the idea that there... Uh, that people come from other nations and that kind of overtly engage in the kind of national display of patriotism or, um, yeah, patriotism is a good one, in order for them to demonstrate a kind of um, inness, inness, a kind of belonging to that identity. Now, what will often come with this, or not often, sometimes come with this, is immigrant people hating than other immigrant people 
if they fail to do the same things. Now, there's a problem with that, uh, even though there might be some like quote unquote truth to it, because it essentially casts like immigrant or these so-called model minorities as just being like um, unconscious, essentially stupid subjects that just engage in the kind of um, artificial national identity that us critical smart people know is, is is a total farce where for a lot of these people it's you know it's a survival tactic because if they don't do that they are going to be you know called out they are going to be uh the target of like attacks on you know the internet or on any other kind of or in any other way that they really can't do with so on the one hand uh it's something to be critical of, but at the same time, we have to be careful when we talk about it in those terms. But all this to say that for Tobani, it's not unlikely that this idea of the national identity can be seen as a kind of carrot on the end of the stick or a kind of point to arrive at for a lot of immigrant people. And she worries that what might come with this is uh, a kind of enforcement of that very oppressive system. So there's also the perception that um, the other, the quote-unquote other, is also taking over in other ways. So to kind of remain with Canada here, there's a lot of fear that China is taking over Vancouver. So for those that aren't familiar, Vancouver is on the west coast of Canada, and it's it has a lot of problems with like housing, which is not surprising because like any other city except it seems cities in Quebec uh, have very big problems with housing where rent prices are inordinate. So people are blaming in Vancouver, some people, I'm not saying everyone, uh, are blaming the fact that uh, China, Chinese people are coming in and buying all these properties and then raising the prices, making it difficult for people to live there. When in fact, you know, this is happening all over the place, and it has to do a lot more with Canada's like refusal to regulate, you know, um, rent prices and refusal to, you know, actually step in with that, because you know, landowners are the one that makes that make all the money, and it's it's ridiculous. Like, it, it what people pay for like basement apartments in like crappy cities in in Canada is is absurd, except for. Montreal, really, and other cities in Quebec because they have uh, specific um, kind of kind of like unions, but uh, like apartment or renters unions or, or something that really make sure that none of that happens where, you know, a landlord can't just increase the price, you know, double it as soon as tenants leave for the next tenants. So immigration was a very hard thing to do for a long time for, for people, precisely because many of these fears uh, were, and then there was introduced uh, what she calls the points, or what, what was called the point system in Canada. And then in the 60s, there was introduced what was called the point system. So the point system kind of broke down various different possible qualities of immigrant people, prospective immigrants. So like um, work experience, education, language skills, you know, family status, stuff like that, that would essentially, de de depending on how far you were in any of those things, would give you points. So, and if you had a certain number of points, you were then eligible to immigrate to Canada, which made it, to some extent, easier for people to come in, uh, which might seem like, oh, wow, okay, that's a good thing then. It was transforming, you know, the way that people saw immigrants, where Tobani wants us to kind of hit the brakes on that and say, whoa, 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 uh, let's also look about at what's going on around that time. Uh, you had things like, um, well, actually, no, I won't go into that. But for Tobani, it was specifically the fact that many corporations were looking for workers. And what better way to get, you know, free cheap labor than to sell the idea, you get to come, you know, to this amazing, quote, unquote, place, quote, unquote, amazing place. Uh, and then, you know, we'll give you a few bucks if you work in, you know, this, this factory here for, for cheap. So that was obviously a tactic motivated by the kind of, kind of growing uh, corporate interest that was influencing the Canadian political scene. But of course, that was met with a lot of resistance by uh, by many Canadians. 
where a lot of Canadians then saw, you know, and even me saying this, Canadians, who are these Canadians? But I'm doing it in quotes. These Canadians saw immigrants as being a threat, like the kind of same sentiment that is goes around everywhere today. Immigrants are taking our jobs, where the problem is never corporations are influencing the way that uh, policy is being made to make it so that people work for nothing. And the two people vying, that is struggling for the $7 an hour job, hate each other and don't hate the person that is, you know, essentially motivating them to be struggling for this less than uh, poverty line job. And that kind of moves us smoothly here into chapter three, that is dealing with the welfare of nationals. So we all know how the wealth, quote unquote, welfare state is treated as far as the economic aspect goes. So this should be no surprise that the welfare state that kind of emerged around the same time uh, might have appeared to be beneficial to disenfranchise people, but in fact, you know, wasn't, obviously. So ultimately, what the welfare system did for Tobani, and this is on 106, uh, the welfare state increased the legitimacy of the state, stabilized the capitalist system, and weakened class solidarity among the proletariat. Now, this also had the added consequence of instilling in the minds of so-called Canadians or nationals that they were paying for, like, disenfranchised people. So, like, immigrants, uh, criminals, um, people s suffering with, like, mental disease or addiction or stuff like that. Canadians then felt like they were being cheated because they were paying for what other people were going through, which obviously wasn't the case. But what this served to do is reinforce the idea that there are this, the kind of gift-giving Canadians that are, you know, hospitable and they, they are generous. And then there is the um, ungrateful kind of blood-sucking uh, degenerates that are just taking from these hard-working Canadians. So this kind of um, mind frame, that is of Canada, Canadians being like... Um, bringers of, of uh, kind of opportunity and kind of gift giving and, uh, you know, the kind of parents of the nation, I didn't say that as well as I could have, but anyways, has its roots, Dobani suggests, in what was happening with residential schools. So for those that aren't familiar, Canada has a very rough history with what are called residential schools, where Indigenous kids were taken away from their families and communities and essentially thrown into these boarding schools where she is statin here. Some like 42% of these children, children would die per year in these schools. Not to mention the fact that many of them were being abused, many of them sexually abused, neglected, all kinds of terrible things in these schools. But these Canadians felt like they were, you know, doing a wonderful thing. Because they, in the, and this came about through their process of exaltation, in their be, exalting themselves, they said, okay, we are civilized. We know we are civilized because we know indigenous people are not civilized, according to them. So, the only humane thing that we could do is, because the parents are a lost cause, take their kids away and put them in these civil, civilizing spaces and in these civilizing spaces that is residential schools you know they'd be taught the word of god they'd be taught you know other things that people european people thought were uh important and if a few of them die eh, it's for the greater cause which is really fucked up like it was really messed up and it had detrimental effects like the last you know to i say to this day or I would say to this day but like their last residential school closed only in the 90s, I believe, which is absurd uh, and is totally reprehensible. But it wasn't even just that kids were being thrown in these terrible schools. You know, they're being taken from their families and in many cases, many cases, some cases adopted by, you know, white families because they said they believe that, you know, the nuclear family and the nuclear family is the idea that you have like a father, mother and kids. Um, the nuclear family is the superior form of kind of familiar life. And so it was seen as being like a kind of beneficial move for people. 
And there's a really lovely book uh, by Thompson Highway, this is a Canadian, Indigenous Canadian author, titled Kiss of the Fur Queen, which I highly recommend. It's really good. It follows the story of two Indigenous brothers that are essentially go through this process. And there's a moment in it when one of the brothers, I can't remember which, uh, says, it's really no surprise to me that, you know, these white European settlers are so violent. And he says that it's essentially because it seems to me that it's because their religious kind of iconography is all about violence. And for any of us that have been in a kind of Catholic church, you know, if you're in one of those Catholic churches with all the kind of pictures of the crucifixion that goes through the various processes, like the various stages, you know, of Jesus, you know, being indicted or being given the guilty verdict and then uh, he's forced to carry the cross and he's whipped and all this stuff it's it all centers on violence so this this child uh, makes this revelation that wow you know this is really quite unsurprising then that they act the way they act you know in their kind of violent ways precisely because they that's all they know is violence and that is from from there then that she moves into chapter four titled Multiculturalism and the Liberalizing Nation. So this chapter deals specifically with the idea of multiculturalism. So this kind of came about under uh, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government uh, in the, in the 80s, uh, the early 80s, I believe. Um, and he was a kind of major figure behind Canada as a quote unquote multicultural nation where he saw that, and I'm not saying that he was like a mastermind behind this, but there are certain benefits that can be incurred if you sell the image of your nation as being a multicultural hotbed, essentially. Now, this was done in distinction to the kind of American ideal, the, the melting pot, you know, where people are meant to go and completely ascribe to that identity, like, so-called American identity, whatever that is. And that ultimately for Tobani, what multiculturalism did was to kind of politicize racialized bodies to kind of put them on display so that Canada could say, look at how amazing we are. We take in anyone and they can keep existing as they want to exist. But of course, that doesn't address, and this is kind of the main point she wants to get at here, the fact that Canadians, i.e., White people, white Canadians, are the superior in-group, and all others that come are derivative of that. So it's no surprise then, and she makes the claim, that this kind of multiculturalism only really was able to emerge when whiteness was kind of grounded as the dominant uh, you know, race of Canada. Now, this had a particularly uh, strong effect in the post-World War II period, where Tobani says it was a kind of crisis of European ideals, right, with things like gas chambers and, you know, concentration camps that really threw the idea of, you know, the national identity of, you know, rational people uh, for a loop. It really threw all that off. So Canada was like, well, how about we sell the image of the, I guess, the total opposite of that? That is, we welcome people, but we welcome people for our own benefit. So it's a more effective way at kind of controlling people. And what is more, it serves the end of kind of erasing Canada's violent past with immigrants and indigenous people because it says, look how far we've come. Sure, we have this bad past, but let's forget about that. Like we are better now. And any kind of exceptions to that are simply being conducted by a few like bad apples. So it really can't stand in for the rest of Canada. So how about you just shut up about it and just accept it because we are, you know, superior now. So this was really effective for Tobani because it kind of served the end of de-radicalizing people. That is de-radicalizing anti-racist politics because Canada could say, look, we're doing all we can. We are the most open country in the world. Uh, therefore, racism doesn't exist here. So you really have nothing to complain about, which is just a way for them to do the bare minimum in order to fly under the radar of any kind of, um, any kind of critical gaze, which of course we know is garbage.
And this is even internalized by immigrant people who then, having accepted the idea of Canada as an amazing place of opportunity and multicultural identity, these people who will then internalize any kind of uh, pitfall that they experience as their own fault because they are told that it can't be Canada's fault because Canada is an amazing, wonderful place and Canadians are amazing, wonderful, generous people. And anything that goes wrong has to then, well, you're the only one left, so it's your fault, which is a very effective tool at dissuading critical analyses of, you know, systemic forms of oppression. Because why would you bother if you really believe it's your own fault for something going wrong? And I should add, you know, there's so many consequences to this, that it also served the end, that is, multiculturalism served the end of casting people who wanted things for themselves as backwards, anti-multiculturalism people living in the past. So the example she gives is how when indigenous people are asking for things for themselves, you know, the Canadian can then have recourse to say, well, what about, you know, you're, you're only thinking about yourself, like that is not holding up with Canadian values, which is just a way for, you know, backwards Canada to claim other people are messed up. So there's a very good way, another way to put this, and anyone familiar with Quebec politics, especially uh, language politics in Quebec, would at least find this relevant, I think. But there is a tendency... So let me give a little bit more um, exposition first. So French laws in Quebec are kind of strict in an, in an effort to kind of maintain, you know, French as the primary language in Quebec, uh, which I think is a, a good thing. You know, my own, my own opinion, to do with it what you will, uh, because the language is under threat to some extent by like a gigantic culture industry that threatens to take it away. And for my own part, uh, I think French should be maintained in Canada. But anyways, so there is a lot of animosity among English-speaking Quebecers against French-speaking Quebecers because when French-speaking Quebecers say, we feel like we're under threat from, like, you know, uh, English influence, Canadian Quebecers say, well, you, you just get over it. Like, you aren't really being under threat. Uh, in fact, we are the ones being oppressed because our stop signs now say, the French word for stop is arrête. Uh, they now say arrête instead of saying stop. Or it's harder for me to get services in, uh, in English now in Quebec. So, on at first glance, it might seem like, okay, yeah, that doesn't really seem fair. But on further or in further investigation, it seems less like these English-speaking Quebecers are concerned about, you know, the rights of other people. And it seems like in many cases a way for English Quebecers to kind of demonize French Quebecers as being, um, you know, kind of backwards selfish, only caring about themselves. Uh, and especially, this is, this is especially relevant when we consider the thing I mentioned earlier, the kind of Quebec uh, immigration laws were where um, English Quebecers weaponized that against French-speaking Quebecers to say, well, look at how backwards you are because of the kind of impositions you put on uh, immigrants, which I should say aren't great. But I'm very suspicious because these English Quebecers are not, you know, social justice radicals running out in the streets trying to fight injustice. They don't do any of that. And so I, you know, we get very really suspicious and then we, we question, okay, how much of this is actually about, you know, kind of maintaining or uh, sorry, how much of this is, is about a kind of egalitarian project opposing oppression and how much is, of it is, is about kind of maintaining one's superior status. So English Quebecers trying to maintain a superior status over French Quebecers by demonizing French Quebecers. And I think that the very same thing in how Tobani's describing it here, with Canada against Indigenous people, where they say, well, you really have nothing to complain about because we've given you all of this, and the fact that you don't like immigrants coming because they're taking over your land, or, you know, immigrant populations are growing in various places that you see to be your land, is because you're backwards and you haven't ascribed to Canada's multicultural 
values yet. So really you should check yourself, which is just an effective way for Canada to silence, you know, the needs of various different peoples, especially indigenous people. Oh God. Okay. It's an aside, a big digression. That puts us here into chapter five. That is reforming Canadian, sorry, reforming Canadians, consultations and nationalizations. So this chapter looks at two different kind of policy reviews that went, uh, or two reviews that were undergone. There was the, what were called the Immigration Policy Review and the Social Security Review. So the Immigration Policy Review is kind of a survey conducted uh, for, by Canadians, quote unquote Canadians, about, you know, the, what immigration means to them, which was kind of dealing with it at a cultural level. So the level of values. Whereas the Social Security Review was looking at the way that, you know, in many cases, funds were being allocated to, you know, immigrants and other various things. So the Immigration Policy Review is mostly cultural, whereas the Social Security Review is mostly uh, economic. So these efforts were uh, meant to kind of find ways to um, improve relationships between immigrants and quote-unquote Canadians. Now, Tobani says that that is not the case because what it essentially did was reinforce the idea that there are Canadians and that there are immigrants and that there is a clear separation. And she includes a number of testimonies by people uh, that did these surveys or these, these studies, these reviews that participated in them. And many of them are very messed up, you know, saying that like immigrants coming here don't deserve like anything because you know, they, they should be happy just to be in like Canada and they shouldn't get any help or anything like that. Uh, they shouldn't be coming here at all. Like there are a number of different messed up ones. And ultimately, most of the people just wanted to ban immigration altogether. Now, this had a kind of interesting, what I call an interesting, it's terrifying consequence. And that is that it kind of bestowed immigrant immigrants with a kind of power that they did not possess. So it was saying that, you know, immigrants are going to come here and screw up Canada in X, Y, Z ways, to which Tobani says that, like, that how is that possible? Like, these immigrants come here, in many cases, with very little. They aren't exactly going to band together and do these things you say. So it's a kind of, you know, conspiratorial imaginary that motivates these fears as well. But it, it's, it's fascinating to me, and I, I don't know why I'm thinking about it, because Tobani only just mentions it briefly. But it's interesting because it casts the other with a, an authority that they surely do not possess. And it is by virtue of that that Canadians are actually able to strengthen themselves by strengthening the other, right? By saying the other poses this threat with their strength, therefore we must be stronger than them. So these reviews essentially reveal that can Canadians believed immigrants to be like backwards and messed up. And there are a number of different consequences of this, and I'll read one here. So one example, and this doesn't have to do with Canada, but uh, these things, these kinds of questions and stuff for her, quote, bring to mind the behavior of British immigrant officers who demanded in the 70s and 80s that sponsored Asian women undergo virginity tests at airports to prove their commitment to their fiancés who had sponsored them. Just enforcing the idea that, you know, Immigrants are conniving, evil, manipulative uh, agents in this world, and that we have to like mobilize an apparatus to combat that. So finally, here we get into chapter six, and that is nationality in the age of global terror. So obviously, this is talking about the post 9-11 period, which everyone I assume is familiar with, but in case you aren't. Uh, September 11th, 2001, there was a major attack in New York City against the World Trade Center, uh, conducted by people mostly from Saudi Arabia. Uh, but it prompted the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan, which makes no sense. But anyways, uh, this provoked a lot of fear in the hearts of many, quote-unquote, Western people because of the possible threat of, you know, the other so what this motivated for Tobani was the idea, or motivated, kind of intensified the idea that the West is best, and that anyone who didn't ascribe to that was backwards. So this is where we get into the idea of, 
you know, Muslim women being oppressed because of them wearing like a hijab or a niqab or anything like that uh, in the eyes of the Western people, where uh, the the mantra that comes from Spivak, you know, the idea that it is up to white men to uh, to save brown women from brown men kind of um, intensifies. And that is the idea that it, it is up to the West to kind of rid the world of backwardsness. And Canada was closely tied to this, you know, following the United States into the Middle East following 9-11 and helping them with so many other little, you know, military projects across the globe. So the Canadian media in, this, in these efforts often serve the end of um, kind of stoking fears of, you know, the other, even though there, there were no terrorist acts happening in Canada at all, yet there was starting to uh, grow a general animosity towards that fantastical spectral enemy that is the terrorist. So it motivated this these, these drives by Canadians to, you know, want to go into various places and blow them up because they somehow had the same characteristics as these so-called terrorists. But this is all very ironic for Tobani because, as I think she correctly identifies, terrorism is often the result of kind of imperialistic efforts. So uh, the example in the United States would be like uh, how the United States, in its role in Afghanistan in the 80s, when Russia was threatening to kind of uh, invade Afghanistan, they armed like everyone there and then there was the gulf war where they essentially you know took over the uh the middle east in search of oil um which all stoked what would become the taliban that would orchestrate these attacks or al-qaeda so she says that oftentimes terrorism is the result of imperialistic strategies or imperialistic moves so then she says that it's ironic that canada would get involved in this because that would then actually prompt you know, such things to happen. So it's a kind of um, self-fulfilling prophecy that Canada does this because then if it happens, if there is a terrorist attack in Canada, then, you know, they can say, look, look at the threat that was there. Thank God we were doing all we did. Not ever considering the possibility that it is precisely because they engaged in these kind of imperialistic efforts that they prompted such a response. Now, Tobani isn't naive. She also recognizes that Canada couldn't very well just say, actually, no, we're not going to get involved with this, because then that would, you know, uh, create tensions between, you know, them and the United States and other countries in the quote-unquote West. So, you know, she wants to recognize that as well, but she does that to recognize that it's a much bigger problem than just, like, Canada itself. And the other... You know, obviously the consequence of that has been the rise of violence against Muslim people, at least Muslim-appearing people, uh, all across North America. Like the various terrorist attacks happening that happened in Quebec that I mentioned against the mosque, uh, or what we saw in New Zealand with the Christchurch incident. Incident. I just called that an incident, that terrible tragedy. And then it is from there that we get into the conclusion where she says, kind of repeats the essence of the book, all the key points, uh, but I want to highlight uh, that she says that we must first understand that violence committed against non-white people, that is in many cases uh, racialized bodies, these aren't like fringe uh, ultra conservatives doing these things. These are, you know, it's part of our identity our identity to oppose anything that is not, you know, white in many cases. And she says that if one thing that we have to do to kind of begin this process is to obviously dismantle this exaltation status, which can only really come about in the case of Canada, if we kind of develop our connection to indigenous people, because, you know, these people are right here and we have a kind of we owe it to them to really put in an effort to uh, repair, make amends for all the violence committed against them in the first step to combat exaltation as being uh, 
you know, a thing at all, but that white people are the only ones that are considered like real, you know, Canadians. But yeah, that pretty well encapsulates it, I guess. Um, I guess a shout out here to Lame, L-A-I-M, my patron, uh, who right now is donating quite a bit. And for anyone else that can, I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, on that note, I hope you got something out of this. If not, you know, or if you have any problem with what I did, you know how to tell me. Uh, but yeah, take it easy.